Hey everyone, it's Rob Liefeld here with another episode of Observations. How you guys doing? Hope you're doing well. We are uh, not quite done talking comics and pop culture and all thing comic books because everything com- everything is comic books now. I, I went to the car wash and there are, uh, as you guys well know, who, who frequent car washes, there are numerous, uh, uh, you know, window protectors that are that are superheroes there's there's superman and iron man and hulk and deadpool wolverine and spider-man and those are the ones that i saw today and i'm like wow and they're prominent prominently featured in the store for you to grab because as i said we made the world comic books we made the world comic books we succeeded we uh you know the revolution happened and now comic books are at your mom and pop store, they're at your car wash, they're at Target, they're at Walmart, they're at Costco, they're literally, they're in your Happy Meals, they're everywhere. So um, interestingly enough, uh, starting off with a, a current bend on, on today's uh, podcast is uh, there was a comic book that I was really looking forward to uh, these last few uh, months, really. It, it got it ended up getting resolicited, and, uh, which means... It was originally set to arrive in July, and then they uh, solicited it again for a fall date, which is, you know, this week, and it uh, ended up generating a ton of interest because this franchise uh, is a great one. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just, it's such a great story, and uh, the, the the concept behind this current project involving this franchise uh, really got everybody, myself included, uh, just extremely excited and extremely juiced. And it finally hit yesterday. And it was the hottest book I have seen enter the comic book marketplace in the last several years. Easy. And that is The Last Ronin. The Last Ronin, which is a uh, kind of a post- apocalyptic dystopian future story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, TMNT. And uh, it is uh, spearheaded by Mr. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, Kevin Eastman, uh, Peter Laird, the, the the other shared creator on this, uh, shares a story credit. And, and Kevin, who is never far from these comics, provided uh, layouts, script story, uh, the whole shebang with his um, collaborators. And it's a 48-page, uh, larger size format, not bigger than a standard comic book. And it is one heck of a production. And I don't want to blow anything uh, other than what I've said earlier. There is one turtle left standing, or is there? But uh, who that turtle is, what they're doing, uh, the future that they're navigating is extremely exciting. And it really continues along the path that uh, saw the turtles come to life in the very first place, which is a deep, deep influence by the master, the maestro, Frank Miller. And I know that uh, both Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman would uh, completely, uh, uh, you know, give themselves over to the, yes, Frank is a giant influence on them, has been so from the start of this franchise. And, uh, you know, there was a great episode of Netflix's The Toys That Made Us that focused on all of the uh, coming together of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles between Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman. 
and it is one of the best episodes in the bunch, and I think every episode Netflix has done on the toys that made us are A++++. They're all top shelf. This one is a cut above. It it features a reunion of Laird and Eastman for the first time in, um, it, it feels like 20 years. Uh, it follows them as, as, as they come back together and, and reunite and start jamming. And, and, and maybe this is the, the, the proto, maybe this is the product of, of what went down that day when they filmed that. Uh, it's just really exciting to see the last Ronin, to, to see Kevin Eastman, uh, throw so much of himself in, in, into this. As you guys well know, or maybe you don't, Peter Laird, the other, uh, creator of the Turtles has, um, been more reclusive. He has always, uh, at least for the last two decades or more, I, w- I would say nearly 30 years, he has been content to stay out of the public light. And I mean like away period, not even like comic book sites. It, it's just, uh, it, it, he, he just, um, you know, found his comfortability after the turtles, you know, hit it big with cartoons and toys and eventually giant super movie fame. And he, uh, he just, uh, he, he found, you know, contentment with just being away from it all. And, and Kevin, I think is, uh, reminds me a lot of myself really, uh, excited by comic books. Kevin goes, gets his comics on a regular basis, still interacts with the community on a regular basis because it's, it's fun. I mean, we, we love this community and, and if you love comic books and sequential storytelling and the, and the people behind comic books and the two tent poles, I think the two biggest influences that I always saw in Laird and Eastman, and again, they would cop to this. There's, there's, you know, there's no hiding. It's like me trying to tell you that Art Adams was not a huge influence on my work. He was, it's obvious. It'd be ridiculous to deny it. Um, Eastman and Laird were most influenced by Jack Kirby and Frank Miller. And you could see it all over in the way they laid their pages out, drew their, drew their figures. And especially on, in the, um, in the rendering that they put on top of the underdrawing. And when the turtles first came out, I can remember like it was yesterday going to the comic store on a Saturday afternoon to get, get my comic books in high school. I couldn't make it over to the comic book store on Fridays. Now here's the deal in the eighties, comic books weren't released on Wednesdays. We have lived in a culture of Wednesday release for the last 25, 26 years. Okay. Comic books got moved to a Wednesday release date. Um, record albums used to be released on Tuesdays, books on Tuesdays. So when comic books came out on Wednesdays, it, 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 you know, the industry somehow for some reason rationalized that that was a good idea. But prior to that, all through the eighties, when the direct market was booming and growing and, 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 and finding its way. And I, again, for a good 10 years. So, so let's say I started going to a comic store in 1980, which I did, uh, all the way up till I think 93, uh, comic books came out on Fridays. They came out on Fridays and they were there all weekend. So your retailer lived for the weekend. He was working for the weekend. You'd have Friday, Saturday, Sunday sales really strong. I guess the date to Wednesday was to keep it, you know, strong all week long because you're always going to get weekend customers. But for me on, on, uh, I'm, I'm in high school. I can't get to the comic store on a Friday night. It's too late. Uh, you know, the comic store near me was not close to the, uh, the high school that I went to. So I always reserved my comic, um, visiting days on Saturday. I'd generally go between, you know, 11 and one o'clock. And I just have plenty of time to kick around the store 
And no matter which store it was, but on this particular day, when I discovered the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, this magazine-sized black-and-white comic book, it was at Comic Castle in Fullerton, uh, which I frequented for, for, I mean, years, many, many years, six, seven years, easy. And uh, I walked in, and I'm getting my, you know, comic books, and there it is. There's this oversized magazine in the back of, 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 of the, uh, the uh, it was on the lower shelf because it's a T and it was all, everything was ra- uh, wrapped alphabetically. So TMNT, there it is. I grabbed it. And guys, if you don't think I feel like a bonehead, because while I flipped through it and I was super impressed, I'm like, who's, who's this Eastman Laird? And you know, this stuff kind of looks like a m- mix up of Frank Miller's Ronin his daredevils, I mean, they're ninjas, there's throwing stars, there's size, S-A-I, size, the, the, the ninja size, uh, you know, katanas, um, you know, bow staffs, uh, you, you got, uh, did I say ninchucks? I mean, it, it's, it's very much Frank Miller's daredevil with the style of rendering that Frank Miller was doing on Ronin with uh, kind of Jack Kirby figures. It was a cool style, man. And yet, it just didn't... I, I, I took for granted that it would still be there. It wasn't in my budget that day. I bought my Marvel and DC and whatever independent comics that I was buying at the time, whether it was ElfQuest or or Nexus or something from First Comics. But I, I put the Turtles back, foolishly believing that it would be accessible to me later on. Well, like so many of you, and maybe some of you have these kind of stories, uh, over the weeks, it became apparent that those Turtles copies were completely dried up, they were gone, and you'd go to conventions and you saw them on the back walls for 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks. They are extremely, I don't know how many thousands a first edition Turtles, like the one that I flipped through and put back, go through now, but it is enormous. It is expensive for a good reason. These guys were printing their own comics. They, they They were printing them themselves and sending them into the distribution network and, uh, you know, I'm not haunted by it. You know, I I was fortunate enough to get like a Walking Dead number one, but maybe that's your 20-year modern, uh, uh, you know, barometer. Once I got turned on to The Walking Dead by Mr. Robert Kirkman, who shoved one in my face and said, look, you'll like it. Uh, It's zombies. And I'm like, I've never even seen a zombie movie. And and he's like, no, you got to try this out. And and, and it was uh, a weekend at the Chicago Comic Con, uh, Wizard World Chicago, back in the early 2000s and that's when Robert got me so turned on that I went home and I watched all the Romero films and eventually uh, with the local stores around here I was able to get a uh, Walking Dead number one because that hadn't kicked into completely you know high gear oh my gosh it's disappearing I mean this is like within the first few months of Walking Dead coming out this isn't like within a year so it was still accessible it was around the heat hadn't built on it but you know just like in my life I get told this about Deadpool uh, Robert Kirkman gets told this about Walking Dead, and the Turtles boys know this about the Turtles. The comics were super mega hot before they made it to their giant pop culture event, be it television or movies. But then, if you're already hot going into that, I mean, that's just pouring gasoline on the fire, okay? Uh, New Mutants 98 was consistently, you know, let's call it a $50, $60 book, okay? First appearance of Deadpool. Carrying it through the 90s, early 2000s. Then he starts appearing in video games. Then he's in some cartoons. Then the, then, then, then he's then he's announced that he's going to be part of Wolverine Origins. That kicks the price up. Then after Wolverine Origins, they're going to make his own movie. That kicks the price up. Then his own movie comes out. It's a hit. Same thing with Walking Dead. 
And uh, astonishingly, you know, the Turtles, you couldn't find these comics prior to their agent shopping them to the toy companies and the cartoon companies. And by the time the cartoon hit in, in the late 80s and, and, and the toys were out, you, I mean, Turtles, number one, was already ridiculously expensive. So off cartoons and toys and, and desirability, because you needed to have it, Turtles just took off. And, and it hit the, uh, it, it has been the hottest, hottest comic uh, pretty much since I put it back on the rack as a teenager and decided, you know, maybe I'll come back and budget for that later. And uh, I was buying a lot of comic books. I would generally walk out of a comic store with anywhere from 8 to 12 comics because I was very much buying, uh, I, I mean, a full menu of both companies. And so when I say budget, I mean, again, that's my lawn mowing budget. That's my chores budget. That's whatever I was working on the side, working at the print shop when I was a teenager. You know, my, my, uh, my income uh, but besides going to see movies and, and, and dating my girlfriend, um, you know, I, 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 I had whatever was left over to buy comic books, like so many of you, because we're still budgeting for those today, right? Even though now we're grown up, we have credit cards, there's only so much our wife will accept, our families will accept in regards to us with our exposable, uh, di- ex- <laughs> disposable income on our amazing uh, hobby, passion, uh of comic books and all things comic books. And so, so the turtles, that's when I first met them day of release, weekend of release, put it back, uh, eventually started catching up, but, but have never had one of those first editions, um, in my hands, which, you know, uh, not ruling it out, not ruling out that there's not a Tony copy out there, a really pristine, uh, nice copy waiting to be, uh, in, in, in a really nice grade for me to, to, to swipe my credit card and, and, and then crack it and have Mr. Eastman, uh, you know, sign it for me. But, um, Kevin, I, I've never met Mr. Laird, Mr. Peter Laird. I've never met him. Um, and, but, but I have had many interactions with Kevin Eastman. He is a sweetheart of a guy. If you've met him, uh, I've been at many different conventions with him. He is passionate about what he does, about the characters he created, uh, about the, the un- wonderful fans that, that have supported him all these years. Uh, I have been down, he had a dedicated kind of uh, office slash um, mini museum in San Diego there for many years, and I, I visited that. It was so fun to, to visit with him. He has drawn some killer sketches for me on sketch. We swapped. He did a turtle sketch cover for my kids. I did a Deadpool for his kid. Um, it was fun. It was. It's really fun, and it's so great to see that the last Ronin, so before this came out this week, these copies are booking for 30 bucks online, okay? Uh, it, it's crazy. I know friends who went to five, six comic stores yesterday trying to find this, and it's nowhere to be found. So it's funny that uh, first prints of The Last Ronin are meeting the same fate that the first prints of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did back when it was launched, 83, 84. Um, whenever it came out, the year is going to evade me right now because I didn't... Um, un- here, here's the thing you don't know. I don't plan these shows. I, I turn the mic on, and 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 if I'm if I'm in the middle of telling you a saga like like Fighting American or Heroes Reborn, well, that was obviously once I've done the first episode, I know I'm going to keep going till I till I finish. But a lot of times, guys, I pull up here, and I and and maybe what's in my view 
uh, is, is what I'm going to talk about that day. And again, I've been pouring over this last Ronin, and, and it's exciting because I remember when the Turtles movie came out and blew up. And I remember seeing it opening weekend with my friends. I convinced them all to go see this crazy Turtles movie, and we couldn't believe how great it was. And the, those animatronic turtle faces and bodies and the, and, the, and, the, and the guys who were in the costumes doing all the karate moves. I mean, it was fantastic. And, and, it, and it blew up, and then it just felt like there was no looking back. And you got to understand, so, so Eastman and Laird became, you know, uh, very wealthy off all of the merchandising. You could not go down a to- toy aisle without all these turtles, uh, toys and products and tie-ins prior to the movie. Once the movie came out, forget about it. I mean, these guys, how many lines of this, of this toy and these villains were there? It, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, they put... Playmates toys on the map. I mean, they, they established a beachhead for an entire toy company. So, you know, what, what, why I'm bringing up what, how well Kevin did is because he reinvested it into the comics industry. Some of you guys may not know, he created a label called Tundra and started working with all sorts of great comic talents. I remember um, among, you know, first among them was a guy named Simon Beasley, who was a enormous, enormously popular extremely talented uh, fantasy illustrator, painter um, from, from Europe. And, and uh, he had really blown up doing some DC comics work uh, and, and, and over overseas, over in the UK, whether it was Judge Dredd or, or um, you know, stories in heavy metal over here in America or his DC comics work, highly sought after. Very muscular, very rendered style. It, he, 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 when he first hit, he reminded me of kind of a, uh, again, his influences were Bill Sienkiewicz, who had come to super popularity over here in the States on Moon Knight, which we're going to get to in a future episode because Moon Knight is blowing up as we speak, and the New Mutants, and uh, 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 Bill Sienkiewicz, Elektra, working with with, with Frank Miller. Bill Sienkiewicz uh, was just an amazing, amazing draftsman, illustrator, painter, um, one, one of the most prolific in in in, you know, illustration and paintings. And he just happened to um, have a passion for comics and do so many, so much comics work. But Bill Sienkiewicz, try and spell that. Um, It's a doozy. Um, Again, Bill, when he came out, fans would go, Bill Sienkiewicz? How how do you pronounce that? And I remember at a convention, he's like, it's Sienkiewicz. And once you're told by the man how to say his name, Sienkiewicz, boom. Some guys like Eastman and anybody named Lee have it super easy, Okay. Um, the rest of us, Sienkiewicz, Liefeld, you know, we, 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 you need us to tell you how to say our name. I can't tell you how many times I have been Leifeld or Liefeld. I'm like, there's no field in my name. It's Feld. But Sienkiewicz, that's a whopper. Look it up. But that's how you pronounce it, Sienkiewicz. And uh, Simon Beasley seemed like he was cut from that mold, but maybe a little more muscular, a little more you know, really a lot more muscular. And he loved his musculature, his biceps, his triceps, his pecs, those, those, you know, stomach muscles. But uh, Kevin Eastman teamed up, was doing some, some kind of his version of heavy metal. That, that, that's what Tundra was starting to do. Kevin was giving back to comics. He was going beyond the turtles and creating his own, um, creator own world. And it really inspired all of us at Image. I don't, I don't think I, you know, it's one of those blind spots. Like it's, it's, it's once I'm reminded of it, once I remind myself of it, it's easy to access. One of the reasons that Jim Valentino and I wanted to self-publish so much is we would sit 
Jim came from, you know, small press. And my first few jobs were small press in Megaton Comics. But there's a freedom there. There's a, any, you know, you can do anything in small press. There's, there's no rules and regulations. No one's going to tell you you can't stab a guy in the eye like Todd tried to get Shatterstar to stab Juggernaut in the eye and then Marvel over, editorial overruling him. That is because you're in the domain of corporate-owned characters, more so now than ever, right? But in your own world, man, you're slashing and you're decapitating and um, there's an extra... Violence is fun. We love seeing it on film and we love seeing it in comics. It, it can be, become a bit excessive and that's the fun. That's the fun of it. And so Kevin Eastman had created this Tundra uh, line of comics and, and specials and, and he was just having a good time giving back to comics, doing his own work, hiring his buddies like Simon Beasley. Um, I know there was talks that he was going to do something with Alan Moore. I'm not going to... Uh, go there and, and, and say that that actually got uh, fulfilled, but there were definitely news breaks about Kevin was talking to Alan Moore. But look, these Turtles guys were the were, were like the heroes of artists. Eastman and Laird were like the guys that you're like, oh man, look what they did from their, um, you know, com their their comics art studio w wherever it was in the Midwest and the East Coast. Um, they created their, their 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 little studio at their desk. They created this franchise that is now competing with Spider-Man and Superman and Batman. And, and that's, that's admirable. That's incredibly inspiring. And then Kevin reinvested his money into comic books and, and, and built out his own kind of creator own label. And, um, Kevin had nice setups, booths at the different comic book shows. And he was definitely making his, uh, love and station in comics known. And it was all off the turtles. So it's great that today the turtles are back. They haven't, they've been back. They've been published by IDW um, consistently. But this is a really high concept, um, which again borrows back from when Dar when when Frank Miller did a high concept, you know, last Batman story. Batman 20 years later. He hasn't been Batman. The world is bleak and dark and doesn't need Batman anymore. And and the Batman re-enters as an old man. And here you've got an old turtle in a dystopian kind of post-apocalyptic world. And, and he's re-entering. And again, I don't want to blow the story. But, you know, uh, if you follow the turtles, it was plural. And now there's one of them. So what's the story? Well, I invite you, like myself, to pursue this. I can tell you it was a big kick. I was at my buddy's retail booth last night uh, when I picked these up. And I mean, it was like waves crashing on the sand. I mean, the tide was rolling in every few seconds. I, I, I was like getting tired for him as I'm sitting there perusing his booth. Uh, my Jimmy J, you guys all know him. He, he, he frequents the show. Uh, he had been a really smart retailer and done his homework and had a fair stock of these books. But um, he had sold them throughout the day, but now he's low and, and he's looking on eBay and these books are going for 40 bucks, okay? And it's a $10 comic. Or nine, nine, it's a $9 comic on its own. This book is nine bucks, okay? You, 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 this, is, this is a 48-page, $9 comic. Yes, comics are no longer 25 cents. I, 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 would, I, I would love to go back to my young uh, self who was pulling all these comics off the newsstand and tell him, dude, 40 cents is a, is a deal. Buy more of those. Buy, buy everything on the rack because someday they're going to be $9.99 or $5.99. The average, I think, Marvel comic now is about... Five bucks, especially these big event comics, you know, uh, whatever big Venom event or Thor event or X-Men event, you're paying for it. You're paying eight, nine bucks. And look, I hope the comic companies make money. The creators make money. Everybody who has a passion for doing this, I want them to do well. 
and to be rewarded. And again, these aren't, it's not like the, the page count has got slimmer and the prices went up. When they charge that, again, it's like a 48-page comic book. And that is a lot of, I mean, there's a letterer, a colorist, an artist, a writer, maybe a scripter, um, the inker. Everybody is is contributing to the to, to, to making these 48 pages and that's not cheap in and of itself. So you'll find me on both sides of the coin. I can justify the price because the talent has to get paid. And then when it does the numbers, let me tell you something. This last Ronin, everybody wants it, but it was maybe the biggest selling book of the month. I saw orders of over 150,000 on this thing. That that for in right now in today's world at, a, at, a, at an almost $10 price point, that is massive. So the turtles have been around. There's been a lot of different variations. Hopefully one day I can I can I can contribute because I love these characters. I just haven't been able to make a dent. Maybe after GI Joe I can I can circle back and and convince somebody to let me do a a, a turtle story. Maybe maybe I can do that. Yeah, Kevin is the one guy I would love to work with because for the most part I just write my own stuff now. I know that I've segued into a part of this that that you didn't care about, but I'm I man, I love the turtles, and 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 this gives me even more of a Jones a passion to uh, to get to get into some turtles work. But this is a very well selling turtle book, and there have been turtle books. This isn't like you haven't seen a turtle book in thirty years. This is like IDW has managed this brand really well, as has. Um, I believe Nickelodeon is the, is the partner on this, man. I hope. I, yep, Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon is the partner on this. So the Turtles brand has been very well managed. Even the newest movies that came out about six or seven years ago, the Michael Bay produced ones, I thoroughly enjoyed those. I thought there was re- those really really well done. I think Megan Fox is in those. Um, the Turtles looked amazing. They were bigger, more intimidating, but man, I, I just loved them. I just love the Turtles. I think they're cool. And uh, and and seeing the success that they've had. Uh, is just is just awesome. puts a big smile on my face, and and it's weird because when you can cheer for somebody who I don't I don't have anything to do with anything turtle related, and Kevin Eastman and I now see each other very infrequently, especially given the last time I saw him was a year before the pandemic. Um, but the thing is, he and Peter Laird did it on their terms. They established their success on their terms, and they became world beaters. I mean, literally competing with the top. Uh, 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 pop culture uh, titans, pillars of our time. I mean, easily. The, t- the turtles are on the toy aisles next to all your Marvel and DC and Star Wars stuff, okay? That is a massive, amazing, immense achievement and more power to Kevin and Peter. And, and I'm so excited to see this book out there. And it's again, it's something to be inspired by. It's something to absolutely be inspired by. But uh, this high concept, this kind of the last Ronin, in a, a darker years later, kind of the last story with the turtles just hit the sweet spot with fans. It's what people want right now at this moment. And they're showing up. This was a very highly ordered book. It was sold out. Uh, I was told from my friend in, in LA, 30 people in line before the store opened. Everybody wanted a copy of this book here in my backyard of Orange County, all five stores sold out before they opened yesterday. I mean, this thing is big. So look, I'm, 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 I am, I am not a paid advertiser for the Turtles brand, but I know I'm, I'm giving it some whoop whoops and, and cheering it up today because it's amazing. These guys did a great job. And uh, it just reminds me, like I said, when things that are already hot go big and do the Hollywood thing, it is, it is so much fun to watch. And, and, and we all feel like, oh man, maybe there's some extra fortune given to this when it gets greater knowledge, not, not personal wealth fortune, but just kind of the satisfaction that this thing that I valued is now valued on a greater level. And that's kind of satisfying. It's almost the flip of when like, you know, 
you're a fan of a band like my friend Ted and I were. We 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 were introduced to U2 on our own. And and some of you guys are like, who's U2? It's a U and it's a two. U2. Um the the the, the the number two and the letter U, U2. And uh, they came out in the early 80s with a couple like little little albums, um, Boy and October. And uh, those are the names of the album. And, and and they had some really cool tracks. And, and so U2 was actually touring. Wait for it. You're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but they were touring churches, churches in the area. They were kind of breaking in as a Christian band, okay? And I remember Bono did an interview on MTV sitting under a tree it's like 1984. He's, I just remember Bono is with his cool mullet sitting under a tree and they're asking him about his faith and being kind of uh, Christian rock and, and he embraced it. You know, he's a spiritual guy, spiritual guy, but, but they were breaking in and they're, they're, they, you bought these albums uh, at, at, I mean, I bought Boy in October at Christian Bible bookstores, okay? If, if you have fainted, please, please get the smelling salts and wake up. Yes, this is the origin of you 2 in uh, the United States, they came and they did like a church band. Now, there's a Calvary Chapel in Huntington Beach, a church. And my buddy Ted and I went and saw them. Uh, in They had like an amphitheater. The cool thing in churches, and our church in Brea got one in the early 80s, was creating amphitheaters. No longer, you know, metal chairs. But for the youth group, they poured a lot of money into making these cool youth centers. And it was the amphitheater sitting. So the, the escalated seating in an amphitheater setting and cushions. Oh, so fun. And... Uh, and at Calvary Chapel in Huntington Beach, U2, uh, maybe it was Fountain Valley, but I'm, I'm convinced in my memory it was Huntington Beach. And we drove in his red uh, uh, Volkswagen, uh, and, and, and we, we, we went and we saw them play new tracks from their upcoming album, War, which had, so they're like most recognizable tracks, which is Sunday Bloody Sunday and, and uh, New Year's Day, okay? And U2 suddenly... Was starting to catch on that war album really suddenly got MTV in high rotation playing them, which is where you get the interview with Bono and you get him laying under a tree, and that's how this all comes to be. And 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 here's the deal. Well, then, then, like about a year later, they did a live album called Under the Blood Red Sky, which they uh, they recorded at Red Rock, and and had a lot of these tr- tracks uh, from a live concert that really got them some 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 great notice. And then he had and then you had um um. In the name of love, uh, hit and 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 don't even get me started. When Joshua Tree, everybody and their mother was a U2 fan. You go, oh man, I remember when only I like U2, and now everybody likes U2. You guys all have a story like this: a band that you treasured that was your own personal kind of. I'm cool. I have these albums. Nobody's heard of them, and then everybody loves U2, and everybody you can throw a rock, and everybody loves U2. Oh, I love U2. Wait, well, hey, man, I was there on the church tour in on the church tour when Bono and the boys were uh, Edge and the boys were I think Larry Mullins and who's yet oh man I've got three of the three of the four they were doing the church tours rocking out the little church amphitheaters that is when I came upon you two and became a fan I love their sound I love their sound they had such a great sound it's not a surprise to me that they would eventually break through and become a stadium band that's selling out the Rose Bowl five nights you know in a row I mean amazing but there's that kind of period where you're like Oh man, everybody likes what I like. But in comic books, I think we kind of dig it when everybody likes what we like. Maybe I'm wrong. It's kind of like, oh yeah, man, I was into the turtles. Yeah, I'm that guy that put it back. I didn't, I didn't take it home. I didn't bring it home with me. Um, but anyway, so it's great to see the turtles blow up and, and regain 
their previous dominant form. It's awesome. Good for Kevin Eastman. Good for Peter Laird. Good for everybody involved with this book. Good for IDW. Good for Nickelodeon. Um, you know what? Uh, when, when I first launched Youngblood, and we've covered the, the, the Golden Apple store signing and all the rave and all the excitement. Well, so what happened after that, um, as I'm now inspired by Eastman and Laird and, and their creator-owned stuff, and we're doing our creator-owned stuff, and we're blowing up and getting the news media, my phone rings. Phone was ringing a lot. And uh, uh, agencies were calling. William Morris and CAA. CAA was the mothership. It was the big agency. And they said, Rob, we want you to come in and we would like to represent you. And I'm like, wow, okay. Because they had heard how well the books were selling. And, you know, first thing I said is you don't get any of the comic book money. That was happening without you. But they're like, Rob, we represent the biggest clientele. We want to put you with the big clientele. And we want to make things happen. And so I said, great. I, I definitely want to see my projects, you know, um, as, as, as big screen entertainment, because I love big screen entertainment. I love movies, right? So the first thing that, uh, that, that, that they do is they arrange for me to meet with the biggest director on planet earth named Steven Spielberg. Now I can't even sleep the night before. I know I'm going to meet Steven freaking Spielberg. And if you've ever been to his bungalow, you know, um, uh, offices on the universal lot, the Amblin, you know, um, um, offices. They are like these sweet Adobe bungalows, um, custom made for Mr. Spielberg. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it was so exciting. I'm like, of course I'm going to go meet with Steven Spielberg. I don't know what I'm going to, I don't know what he wants. So I don't know if I have anything that he's interested in. Well, he didn't want to do traditional superheroes. He felt that again, as so many people in Hollywood did, they felt that that, that was being met with Batman and Superman over at Warner brothers. But so I drive onto the lot, uh, his back lot, because he is all the way sequestered in the back of the Universal Studios lot. And don't think that gives you a roadmap to find it. You don't know if it's left or right or whatever, but it's it's back there. It's hidden away. Hidden hidden chateaus, okay? And I go back there, and the first thing I notice when I'm waiting in the lobby is uh, there are real-life Norman Rockwell paintings. Now, some of you young listeners may not know who Norman Rockwell is, but he was only the most important painter of like the 20th century, uh, and, and, and he came to fame uh, painting numerous uh, uh, magazine covers. I want to say the Saturday Evening Post. I don't want to be wrong, but I may be, but he, magazine covers. And he was one of the most influential. Alex Ross in comics cites Norman Rockwell as a giant influence, and you can see it if you compare the two. Norman Rockwell was ahead of his time, amazing. The paintings, so many signature paintings that to people like myself who were a youth in the 90s would immediately register. Oh my gosh. Well, I go and I see that all over the Amblin offices, especially when I was called down the hall to go wait for Mr. Spielberg, they, they called me from the waiting room. But in the waiting room, there's these giant paintings. But let me tell you something. They are behind like eight inch, uh, bulletproof shielded glass. I mean, you're not getting in there and getting access to these airtight paintings that have been securely, you know, uh, positioned on each wall. But when you walk down the hall, you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm in a museum. Steven Spielberg has Norman Rockwell originals up and down the hall. Oh my gosh. So pretty exciting. Well, they put me in a side room and say, Mr. Spielberg will we'll be with you shortly. Now, if, if for a frame of reference, this is early, uh, this is this is late, late winter '92, fall fall winter '92. Stephen has completed shooting Jurassic Park and is just wrapping up editing Schindler's List. This is that incredible year 
where he did his. One for him and one for them. And the one for them, which is us, is the big blockbuster popcorn you know, dinosaur movie based on, you know, the bestseller Crichton novel, okay? Jurassic Park, okay? The dinosaurs are coming back to life in an amusement park. So Stephen is bringing this to life. It's all the buzz, but he's also making a very intimate, very, uh, uh, you know, um, um, deep, uh, moving drama about the Holocaust called Schindler's List. Well, I, I, but there's so much buzz on both of these. And of course, it's, it's this amazing year where both movies turn out to be uh, overwhelming, gigantic monster hits. Uh, one popcorn, you know, movie hit and one deeply moving Oscar nominee, Oscar winning. He won the Oscar, okay? But, so this is when I'm seeing Steven at the, at the apex of his success. He, I mean, he's gone above Jaws, above Close Encounters, above E.T., above Raiders. This is, he, I think he knows it. Neither movie have, will, will come out until the following summer, but he knows he's got a winning hand. Everybody who's working with him knows. They've seen the footage. Well, there's all these little kind of maquettes of dinosaurs that are in Jurassic Park in the Amblin offices too, especially in the giant meeting room where I'm going to meet him. There's this giant, beautiful, you know, table, wood table, you know, that I'm, 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 uh, I'm waiting at, but there's all this kind of machinery that's got a, uh, a cloak on it, a, a couple like, like, like sheets over it, like cloaking it. And, and you can see that they're, they're on like metal stands and it looks like cameras and it looks like, like a monitor. And, and, and I just go, what am I going to do? How I am sitting there in this room alone at about two 30 in the afternoon. I don't know. How am I going to meet him? Am I going to, am I going to just turn when he walks in the door and stand up and shake his hands? Uh, where should I be seated? I kept, I, I sat at the head of the table facing the door. I sat at the side of the table, the left of the table, the right of the table. I kept moving around. And then I, I got so fidgety that, uh, I got down on my knees and I, and I lifted up the, the, the covering, the, the, the sheets that were covering all this technical equipment. And I see that it is cameras and monitors. And what do you know? The giant oak door opens and he goes, hello there. And I go, Oh, uh, uh, I'm, I, I'm on my knees. I immediately drop the sheet and, and stand up kind of like, yeah, it's just me snooping into your machinery, Mr. Spielberg. Comes over, greets me, shakes my hand. Good to meet you, Rob. I go, oh, it's such an honor, Mr. Spielberg. And uh, Jason, who was the executive there, said, why don't we sit down? And I said, I'm so sorry. He goes, no, 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 that's fine. Let me tell you what that is. I am doing some remote. Uh, this is how I talk to people at Lucasfilm and some of the other people who are doing remote special effects. This is how I link up. The satellite link is here. I get on camera. That's the monitor. That's how I see them. So this is like early, early before Apple gives us FaceTime. This is like like steampunk FaceTime, okay? But I'm like, oh my gosh, caught red-handed, fidgeting around in the meeting room, um, on my knees. It ended up being the perfect way to meet Mr. Steven Spielberg, greatest director of all space and time. And let me tell you something. Mr. Spielberg, greatest director of all space and time, could not have been nicer, kinder. This was my first big meeting of anyone who I idolized growing up and anyone of that level of talent. I would never meet anybody bigger than Steven Spielberg. So right out the gate, I'm meeting the biggest singular director talent of my entire lifetime, maybe of all time. Couldn't be nicer. And along the way, as I meet other people who are maybe of lesser station, who are complete jackasses, um, I always remembered what a kind and gentle and sweet man that this guy sat with me Little Robbie Liefeld, little little twenty four year old Robbie Liefeld, 
who's sitting and having a creative meeting with Stephen. And you know what? We jammed. We talked about ideas. He talked about what he liked and what he didn't like. And we talked about aliens. And you have not lived until Mr. Steven Spielberg informs you that on the set, while on the set of Close Encounters in 1977, when he was shooting it, when it was released in 78, remember, shot a year ahead, Isaac Asimov is dropping dimes on him and telling him that the aliens in this movie are not from outer space. They are, in fact, time travelers. So Steven Spielberg is telling me that the aliens that I thought were aliens in Close Encounters who take Richard Dreyfuss at the end are not, in fact, from another planet. They are from our future. And I remember Steven goes, what's easier for you to believe, Rob? Is it easier to believe that we are going to make it to some faraway alien civilization and interact with them or that we are going to discover time travel and come back and monitor ourselves because those ufos the reason they come and go so fast that's us watching us i swear to you it was hard for me to get up off the floor back into the chair and eventually out the hall and into my car because mr steven spielberg told me oh yeah class and close encounters those are time travelers and i'm like what mike and any name drops oh you know when isaac asimov and i were jamming on set during the filming of close encounters you know we, we were wondering if people would pick up on this fact. What? I mean, you can hear my brain fritzing back then. Okay? I could not believe the talks that we had. This informed the inspiration for what would become a twist on a familiar comic book tale that I called Dooms 4, which Stephen was all in for. He was extremely generous. We made the deal. The agents were happy. And this set up a whole new relationship with Steven Spielberg and his production company that I would go on to foster for many years to come. Now, Dooms 4, as you know, you're like, well, when did it happen? When did it come out? It didn't. A new guy came in and took over. The J- Jason who facilitated my meeting, Steven, a new uh, guy named Walter Parks came in. And uh, two and a half years later, three years later, called me in and told me that he didn't like Dooms 4 and they were not going to pursue it again. And that was the end of Dooms 4. All of the drafts, all of the work that was done is summarily dismissed. But I would go another round with Mr. Spielberg. We're not going to cover that today. It was even more exciting. But along that time, in that period, I would meet with Stephen about seven or eight times, jamming on ideas, concepts. And he's very, he understands story. He knows story. You can look at his, you know, films and understand the guy knows story better than most, better than maybe anybody, anybody. So he was very influential, very um, 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 eager to, 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 to contribute and also to learn about comics and how comics were done and just what a fascinating, amazing, ridiculously blessed experience that all was. But what happened shortly after that, I got a call, CAA, once again, Rob, would you like to meet with Tom Cruise? Because Tom Cruise, this is, this is the message I got was just turned down by James Cameron to be Peter Parker in Spider-Man. And I'm like, okay, uh, uh, you know, like, okay, let's let, let's let that register for a second. For a brief period, James Cameron had the access and the rights to the Spider-Man franchise. And apparently, obviously, Tom wanted to be in Spider-Man and was told no. So they said, you know, come ready to impress Tom. So let me tell you something. I had seen Outsiders, I had seen Taps, I was aware, uh, I had seen all the right moves, I would seen all of Tom's early movies, but in the summer of 1986, me and my friends, 20 of us, about 10 guys, 10 girls, went to Lake Havasu in Arizona, um, and, and, and we holed up on a couple of, uh, of, of houseboats, 
and jet skis. And we had a great kind of, because we're college age, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm 18. It's fun. My friends, they, they got boats and houseboats. And, 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 and it was just such a blast. We had such an enormous, great time out at the river. And, uh, but at night, you know, when, when, when the day was over, it was Memorial Day of 1986. The, the guys wanted to see Steven, uh, Sylvester Stallone's new movie, which was Cobra. Okay, come on, Rambo, Rocky, everything that 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 uh you know Stallone did was a was a home run knockout. We wanted to do it, but they're like the girls with us, and come on, you're there in the river, um, to impress the girls, and all the girls were like, we're going to see Top Gun. I, I was like Top Gun. I don't even think I I was I had registered a, a, a commercial for Top Gun because I was so so looking forward to seeing Cobra action movie, macho, 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 macho. Right? Okay, it's a macho movie, but uh. So, so, so it turned out was Top Gun, but so the girls convinced us to go see Top Gun and I cannot tell you how much I was swept up and may have fallen in love with Mr. Tom Cruise, like the rest of the known universe, uh, when he and Anthony Edwards and Val Kilmer took to the skies in Top Gun, that soundtrack, that Kenny Loggins music. Yes. The volleyball scene. We all loved it. Tom Cruise, Maverick forever. Right. And I remember we all came home back to Orange County after that weekend. And we probably all went and saw 10 o'clock because again, we're college age, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock showings of Top Gun numerous times that next month. That summer was the summer of Top Gun and Ferris Bueller. Those are the two movies I remember the most. So I'm going to meet Maverick. I'm going to meet Maverick. Well, I can't sleep that night. I literally am up all night. What am I going to sell Tom? What am I going to sell Tom? What am I going to create for Tom? At the time, I didn't have, I didn't have a, I knew better. They didn't tell me this, but I knew that Tom would want a solo uh, focused franchise. So I stared up at my ceiling fan and that ceiling fan became my best friend for the entire night. I just watched it spin and spin and spin overhead in my bed as I thought, what am I going to give to Tom? And then I got the idea and then I think I fell asleep and then my buzzer, you know, I fell asleep at five. My buzzer rang at 8.30. I need to get up to see Tom. Um, I hightailed it in the car and on the freeway, it all just started falling into place. I got the story. I got the motivation. I got the three act structure. I go into CAA. If you'd ever been to the old, uh, creative artist agency, uh, lobby, you could land a plane in it. It was like an airport hangar, uh, more elaborate and, and, you know, beautiful stone and tile, but you know, didn't look like an airport hangar, but it was as big as a, the waiting room was as big as an airport hangar. It, it, every time I pass that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that those offices, I am still remembered of all the fun experiences I had there. And I'm sitting there on the little leather couches waiting to go into my meeting. And I see Tom come in with his shades. He walks by, he's got a white t-shirt. He's got a flannel unbuttoned. It's open. He's got his jeans. He's got some, some small boots on and he walks right past, doesn't check with the desk. Obviously everybody knows that's effing Tom Cruise walking by. Tom walks by, he walks briskly by and I'm like, holy crap, I'm on the clock. I'm going to be called into that meeting soon, soon. Oh my gosh. Going to meet Tom Cruise. Going to hang with Maverick. Me and Maverick, we're going to be best friends. We're going to be best friends for life. Okay. Or longer. Right? So uh, they call my name. I go upstairs. I meet Paula. Paula Wagner is Tom Cruise's agent. She has been his agent for forever. Now I'm going to give you a, a really interesting demarcation that, 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 uh, that separates this from Steven. Tom had been coming off what you, the only true in his career flops at that time. Days of Thunder and Far and Away, both in subsequent summers had been picked to be big movies and they underperformed. So flops is too hard, but they had underperformed. Tom's trajectory had kind of um, dipped to the lowest in his magnificent giant career. Because I mean, from Top Gun, he did, you know, the, the, the Color of Money. He did uh, 
he, he did the Dustin Hoffman film, Rain Man. I mean, he, Tom was on a roll. But then uh, Days of Thunder, you know, we didn't want to see Top Gun at a racetrack. Great movie. Love Days of Thunder. This is not an indictment on Days of Thunder. Audiences did not show up to see Days of Thunder in the way that it was. Premier Magazine, a now defunct magazine, but it was the premier, ironically, movie magazine called Premier Magazine, always would give their top 20 of, of, of any given summer. The top 20, they're picking out the top 20. Top 25, what's going to be number one? And Days of Thunder was picked to be number one in that summer. That's the hype that was on this. It was a, you know, it was the director of Top Gun. It was the producer of Top Gun. And it was the star of Top Gun coming back to give you a racetrack movie. Great movie. Just didn't connect in the way that everybody liked to see Tom flying in jets. Okay. But in far and away, uh, had just not, you know, it, it, it just, it failed to launch. It was not, it, it was, came out early in the summer. I think in 92, 91, and it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't, they're, they're like 90, 91 or 91, 92, those two movies. But Tom had just wrapped a few good men. So he was on his way back. Those movies are in the rearview mirror. The new Tom Cruise, the note, he, he, he is coming at you. Okay. He hasn't been picked to star in the firm yet, but he's going to be in the firm. The big, uh, 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 Grisham, you know, movie that would be a monster hit. That he hadn't started shooting that yet. I, I know this because I would visit him numerous times on the set of the firm. So we get. I I am called upstairs. I meet Paula. She says, "Um, go, go ahead, go and hit, go uh, in this room. We'll Tom will be with you shortly." And uh, the only thing I was told was, "Don't bore Tom. Don't don't talk too much." And I'm like, "Do." And here's the deal. Let me tell you. Let me give you something. When you meet with these A level guys. A-level stars. I don't care what writer you are, what director, what playwright. Um, their time is valuable. Their time is important. And you have a window of time with which to get your information out to them. So I go in and I sit. And I'm, when I tell you that this room is tiny, this room is tiny. It is like half the size of my office. And my office is a nice size, but half of it is an intimate room now. Okay. And the space between me and this other chair is like our knees are going to knock if Tom sits down. And so Tom enters through a side door almost like a like he was in a closet like he opens like a side door and he comes out it's like a, it's like a secret compartment not a closet there's there's nothing in it, it was a side compartment it was kind of like he enters in he goes hey how you doing i i, I shake his hand we sit down we are in, literally knocking knees we are that close very close very close quarters and he goes hey how you doing he goes uh i've read all about you now details magazine another defunct magazine premier wizard uh, details, all these magazines are gone, but details was like kind of trying to be a young man's, uh, a, a hip, young, younger GQ. It lasted for a while, but details magazine had done this interview on me and the image boys. And again, the, um, I, I, I think it was cause of my age. I can only, they, the writer was really gave me a great write up. Okay. So Tom now is dropping to me that he's read this. And in this, this says what says what I make. And, and so first thing says, says is Tom Cruise says to me, wow. So, so you're doing really well. What does a comic book artist make? Now, let me tell you something. I knew to crack the code right now. If A-list movie star is asking you what you're making, first of all, you don't, you don't divulge that. You don't need to. All you need to do is answer the way I did. And I say, with a laugh, I said, nowhere near what a guy like you makes, Tom. And it is, it is at this moment that I encounter the first thing about Tom Cruise that I never knew existed. And it is this cackle. Those beautiful teeth are all pulled back and all his gums. And you've seen it since, but you hadn't seen it then. In 1992, he had not shown the cackle. The, <laughs> what I just did. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to pull back a little way from the mic. 
<laughs> okay, the cackle. I was hit with the Tom Cruise cackle. Now, would he show this to Jay Leno and David Letterman and everybody else in a couple in, in about a year, year and a half? Yes. But, but if you go and see interviews of Tom Cruise pre-1992, he would always just kind of softly smile, nod, <laughs> not, <laughs> and man, I was like, holy crap, Tom Cruise cackles. And let me tell you something. I ran home and told my entire studio, as well as my fiance, my beautiful wife now, Joy, oh my gosh, Tom Cruise, he has this cackle. But at that time, he had not shown the world. This was something I saw in this interview, but I had not seen it on TV talk shows. Eventually, he becomes so comfortable with himself that the cackle is everywhere, okay? Like I said, you would see it in 94, 95. He's comfortable. But up until that point, it was kind of always a grin or a soft, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You didn't see that on Arsenio. You didn't see that on Leno. You didn't see that on Letterman, okay? Just so we're clear. But uh, anyway, we got along. I pitched him this idea about this mythology, and it was called The Mark. And I'm not going to give away too much because I still hope to do something with The Mark one day, but it's the, 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 the mythology is how Tom encounters The Mark. It's, it's probably more of a Raiders of the Lost movie than anything else, but Tom encounters The Mark. It gives him these incredible powers. What is the source of this power? How has it affected history? And The Mark has definitely affected history. And who else wants it? And he's being hunted. He does not get into a costume. He never has, you know, they're, they're you know, he, he's a guy with powers, okay? And that's where we end it. And Tom says to me, I like this. I like this. Now, out of, like, another door, suddenly comes my agent and Tom's agent. Like, they've been listening. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is great. This is going to be great. Oh, Tom loves you. I'm like, he's right here. He hasn't even, what? Huh? Like, I'm telling you, there was a two-way mirror, but there was no mirror. Um, but there, I think there, I, was in, I was in a special meeting room where maybe it was tapped. I'm not sure. This is my, this is my, my, my assumption of all this, but I have made it to round two. Tom Cruise likes the Rob Liefeld idea, likes the Rob Liefeld pitch, says, it'll be great doing business with you. This will be great. This will be great. And then he uh, told me how much he was excited about A Few Good Men. It's coming out for Christmas. I was excited. I was excited for him. And after that, as I said, we were in business together. Tom Cruise, I was one of the first uh, purchases of his new company, which was Cruise Wagner, because Paula and Tom, Paula was leaving CAA to go be his head of production and run his company with him. And they were like, you're our first one. And Tom said, I want to be extra generous with you. And Tom made me the most amazing deal, the structure of the deal, the terms of the deal. And we were off to the races. And over the next two years, I would be, um, you know, meeting with Tom up at his offices in Paramount. He had the Lucille Ball building, the upstairs suite, amazing, the best offices I've ever seen. And we developed this thing called The Mark. Eventually, the um, screenwriter of Terminator 2, William Wisher came in. He did a draft. Um, uh, uh, the the um, Carl Sagan's son, uh, uh, who I met with several times, and he worked with Tom and myself, he came in. Nick Sagan, he did a draft. We were going, trying to make the mark, you know, get that mark made. But you, again, with Tom Cruise, it was different than Spielberg. I would get called, literally, at 7 o'clock at my drawing board at night and say, you have to be on a flight at 6 o'clock tomorrow and go to Nashville and visit with Tom. He wants to discuss story points on the mark. And let me tell you something. You get your ass up at the crack of dawn and you get to the airport at for that 8 o'clock flight and you drive an hour and a half in traffic to get to LAX to catch that flight to get into Nashville where you are led uh, to your car and driven to the... I, I saw like like many, many sites and locales of the firm. 
and I would then, uh, I, one of Tom and I, our meetings occurred when Tom was having a suit tailored and fit for him with like, like the white paper and they were constructing the sleeves and everything. And he's got his hands out like across, you know, while they're, where they're fitting him and, and they're measuring and doing all the measurements and the, and the knitting and the fitting and the, and I'm sitting there having, having a story discussion with him. There's a reason Tom Cruise is the most successful actor of all space and time. The guy works nonstop. He is dedicated. He is, uh, he is in his own many ways, genius. Uh, that's why we go and we show up for his movies the way we do. That's why we adore him. Um, again, things, the mark is going to come back up in part two of Rob's adventures in Hollywood, um, that we're going to get to, uh, soon enough. But, uh, when you go out of your way to create your own world, um, good things happen. I broke off to do Youngblood and make my comics and build my catalog. And not knowing that I would find myself across from Steven Spielberg doing great deals with Steven Spielberg, not knowing I would be across from my favorite actor of all space and time, me and Maverick were hanging, we're buddies. He drove a Viper, I drove a Viper. Except his Viper was custom made by Dodge in a color that they made for no one else but Tom Cruise. Okay? This is the kind of cool crap that you learn when you... um, you hang out and get to creatively work. And it was the creative jams that were so fun. The ideas, you know, that these guys, and, and you know at any time that they're being tossed 10 to 15 things. you got to compete and keep their attention or you're going to lose it. The, the last thing I'll leave you with, uh, the, um, you know, when Mission Impossible came out, I was still in business with Tom. He had gone for a year to make Mission Impossible come back at the premiere. Uh, I was married to Joy now and, and Joy, a man, he charmed the pants off my wife, this guy, made Joy feel like a million bucks, gave her all the FaceTime, the compliments, just asked when we were having a family, when's the kids on the way. This guy is a movie star, the likes of which you have never truly encountered. He charmed the pants off us. At that premiere, the big thing at the premiere party, the after party for Mission Impossible was all the the the, the computer stations. They had the MacBooks and you could send messages, one of six messages to anybody you wanted. The 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 the, the it was they were all hard hardwired, all these different battery packs, and so you could go on and send a custom Mission Impossible premiere message anywhere you wanted. And Joy would like after meeting Tom, her you know, I'm I'm in business with him for three years now and her face is blown off and she goes and telling everybody, Oh my gosh, I met Tom Cruise, he's so sweet. Okay. This guy's the best, all right? Um, but Literally, in 1997, I get a call to pitch ideas for Mission Impossible 2 because they were open and Tom and the production company wanted to meet. And I pitched my version of Moonraker. I'm t- it's Tom Cruise in a space shuttle going up to our space station that has been held hostage. And they're going to fire off all these satellites that they're going to point towards the Earth, which are actually like the Star Wars system that Reagan put up there, laser guns. And they're going to scorch the Earth unless they are their demands are met. And the Mission Impossible team has to, you know, uh, join a, 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 a shuttle that's going up to give supplies and break in. And I remember them going, you're completely out of your mind. But now I am reading that he is going to do a movie in space. I know it's not a Mission Impossible, but nothing thrills me more that eventually, and I know we are, we're going to see Tom Cruise in freaking outer space. Okay. My, you know, Mission Impossible version of Moonraker, uh, maybe that's going to happen. Uh, Die Hard on a Space Station was basically what I pitched them. Okay. Um, which is fun, but that's, that, that, that was all part of my, uh, my incredible journey that started with just taking what I started at Marvel and X-Force and building it off on my own and launching Youngblood and suddenly the phone rings and suddenly the world is getting more and more interesting and, and my world got bigger and more fun.
okay? Because remember, a couple mottos on this show, it's, it's a macho show. We're, 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 we're making macho comics, okay? Richard Anderson from Six Million, Six Million Dollar Man. And then there's also the Japanese candy. Is it fun? But, but is it fun? Um, I, was, I was having fun, you guys. And uh, anyway, go grab the last Ronin Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and come back here next time as we continue to walk down comic books, entertainment, pop culture, all the ways the roads intersect and all the ways artists and, and, and other creatives get together and jam and make cool stuff, okay? Because there is so much more to share, so much more to tell, and I can't thank you enough for hanging with me. I am at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, okay? That's my jam, at Rob Liefeld. I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Both have the blue checks to tell you that it's really me. That's the real guy you're talking to, not the fake guy that's going to ask you uh, to wire money into his account. That's not me, okay? Uh, I'm all over Facebook, all over social media. Say hi. You guys, do me a favor. As always, please take care of yourselves, stay safe, and we will talk again real soon.